Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Now, don't you hate it when people forget your birthday? Actually, I don't really hate it all that much, but here's what happens. A few days later, on Facebook, you'll get a little message. People don't even bother with happy belated birthday cards anymore. They'll send you a little message. Hey, sorry, I forgot your birthday. Hope you had a great time. You know, there's nothing really too special about a little cyber message like that. I'm hoping though, that Roger Corman shares my belief that, you know, birthdays kind of come and go because I forgot his birthday last week. April 5th, he turned 90. Nine decades of awesomeness. Now, if you don't know who Roger Corman is, well, turn off this podcast right now. Actually, don't. Yeah, no, do it. Turn off this podcast right now. Go to a computer and look up uh, any, well, Google him, first of all, and then, you know, look up uh, the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations that he did, like Tales of Terror, The Raven, The Haunted Palace, look up the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, uh, look up uh, The Intruder, look up any number of films. This guy has made more movies than Carter has, little liver pills, as we used to say. Uh, he is the Pope of pop cinema, he was a trailblazer in the world of independent film, and he turned 90. Now. I spoke with him some time ago now, probably four or five years ago, when the Sharktopus movies were all the rage. They were on sci-fi. We talked about that, and that's how this interview starts. But a little bit later into the interview, we get into some really cool stuff and his ideas about what people want to see in the movies and why monster movies and crazy monster movies, to be specific, uh, have managed to have such uh, a lifespan, how movies that he made in the 50s are still popular today, and how he's still making, in some ways, the same kind of movies that he made four or five, six decades ago, even. So here's an interview with Roger Corman, and stick around, because after that, Kevin Nealon stops by for a chat as well. Sharktopus, that debut was the most watched September Saturday original movie in sci-fi history, uh, the second highest ratings of the year behind Lake Placid 3. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you think that movies like Sharktopus and Dino Shark have grabbed people's imagination. So. There have been uh, creature features, as it were, since the inception of films. And uh, what we're doing now with things like Dino Shark and Sharktopus and so forth, we're going uh, farther and farther, and it intrigues the audience. Uh, they're, I don't want to use the word outlandish, but maybe you can do that. Uh, certainly the farthest out type of creature that's been seen. And where do the ideas come from? I know that in Dino Shark, there's a great line, it hasn't eaten in 150 million years, and it's hungry. And I wonder, right. do those lines come first, and then you think, hmm, how can we fit a, build a creature to fit around that line, or do the creatures come first, or how does it work? The creature comes first. Uh, the creature comes first, and what comes next is to try to figure out why the creature exists. That's why um, the very first picture I made of this group was Dinocroc, which I just made independently and sold it to the Sci-Fi Channel, and it got a very big rating. So I then went for Super Gator and Dinoshark, and then the Sci-Fi Channel called me and said, Roger, you've come up with all the titles. We've come up with a title. Sharktopus, do you want to make it? And I said, no. And they said, why not? And I 
gave him my theory, which I still believe in, but not with some modification, which is that you can go up to a certain level of insanity uh, with these titles, and uh, the audience is with you because they want to see it. But if you go over a level, what I might call the acceptable level of insanity, the audience says, oh, you've got to be kidding. They turn against you, and they don't want to see it. And I said to uh, Sci-Fi, I think Shark Tapus goes over the acceptable level of insanity. But one thing led to another, and I said, okay, I'll make the film. Then to my great surprise, I got this giant rating, which shows that I have to up the level of acceptable insanity. <laughs> what would be next? I mean, what, can you give us a hint on, on what will happen when you up the level of insanity? Well, I don't know if this ups the level, but it maintains the level. We just finished shooting Piranaconda, and uh, that's the next one up. <laughs> that's, I hadn't heard about that. That's excellent. I can't wait to see that. Now, um, sci-fi really seems to get these movies. The audiences obviously are, are really getting them. Um, do you feel that there's kind of a renaissance of of the creature feature happening right now. I know that, you know, in, in you know, years ago, 40 years ago, you were making movies that were somewhere along these lines. Um, yeah. Do you think that, that this is a renaissance of it, or do you think that it never went away? I think it's cyclical. Uh, you make a certain type of picture. Uh, it's successful. Other people make the type of film. You may remake or continue with that cycle. Then the audience is saturated with them, and the audience grows tired, and the cycle turns down. It never goes quite away, but people aren't so much interested. But then after a few years, well, somebody will make a good one with a slightly different point of view, and the cycle will start all over again, and it will build up. I think we're somewhere near the peak of that cycle now, and I've discussed this actually with sci-fi. They do not agree with my theory, incidentally. Now, my theory is that this can run another year or so, but that the cycle will start to turn back down. Right, and then, and then you will move along and, and look for the next trend? Yes, move into something else, and then eventually this cycle will start again. All, it's always a little bit different right. uh, than the previous cycle. The basic themes are there. Now, what is it that makes you so adept at identifying these cycles? I mean, th this has been, uh, for your entire career, it always seems to me that you're a step ahead of what people want to see. Well, at one time, I felt... It was because I was probably the youngest or one of the youngest producer-directors in Hollywood. The audience was young, and I felt what I was interested in was what they were interested in, and I could identify their, uh, their thinking. Uh, now, however, I'm one of the oldest producers in Hollywood, and I can no longer say I identify that much with the young people. But I can still draw back on my experience and see what types of films have been successful in the past and which of those types has not been made recently. 
uh, not been made to any great extent. There's always going to be one or two every year of every conceivable type, more or less. Uh, and then I think, how can I bring that back? Because I know it was successful before. There haven't been any for a while. But I must find a new way uh, to treat it. Right. What keeps you passionate? about making movies. You say you're one of the oldest producers in Hollywood. You've certainly probably produced as many films or more, probably way more films than almost anybody else who's currently working. What is it that, that keeps you passionate about going back to the well? I simply love the process of making films. Uh, it is a creative, it's interesting, it's fascinating, and occasionally it can be lucrative. And uh, I like the combination of all of those things. I never intend to retire. In, in producing, will you will you direct as well? Probably not. I stopped directing a number of years ago. I just felt the years had caught up with me. Uh, it was better to work with young directors and, uh, and be simply a producer. Right. Now, sci-fi, who you're making these uh, films for, and we don't get sci-fi in Canada, where I'm calling you from, uh, but we, uh, we certainly have the DVDs, so we can see Sharktopus and, and Dino Shark. It's interesting, though, that 48% of their audience is women. That surprised me, too, when I was told it, because I've always assumed science fiction and horror, or any combination thereof, is primarily men and primarily uh, boys and young men. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think, though, that there's something kind of specific about these movies? And, uh, you know, I, I think that they have kind of outrageous central creatures. Uh, I'm reading uh, something here that you said that there's a, kind of a Freudian interpretation of the psychology where you say a monster coming out of the water is not unlike a baby coming out of the womb, and perhaps that has something to do with it. it have you rethought that, or, or do you have any more comment on that? No, I still believe that. I uh, have different variations of it, but I do think that there, um, the mind works just to a small extent on the surface of the conscious mind, which, as we all know, uh, it's primarily unconscious. And I think um, that these pictures do appeal to un unconscious drives. And we found ways in which, particularly recently, you'll find the woman's role is much stronger than it was on the same pictures we were making 40 and 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I just saw a film called Machete Maidens Unleashed, which is oh, a, yes. a, a documentary about the, the films like the Big Birdcage and things that were shot in the Philippines. And uh, those had very strong female characters in them as well. I think it yeah. used maybe a different way, but certainly this isn't something new for you. Yes. That, that was fairly new at the time. As a matter of fact, I remember um, there was a female critic who, I've forgotten where she was from, I think from Boston, who actually wrote me a letter saying that she had been given the assignment of... Uh, criticizing these films for the exploitation of women and when she saw them she said they do exploit women but they also empower women and she wanted to compliment me on that basis. <laughs> 
Um, and finally, uh, we're almost out of time here. I just want to say, so many of your movies have been uh, remade, Piranha most recently, I guess. Um, how do you feel about the movies being remade? Is it a tribute to you, or would you rather be remaking them yourself, or how do you feel about it? Some of them I remake myself. Some of them uh, I simply license other people to. I think it is a tribute. Um, the main thing, though, is to approach the picture differently when you remake it. You don't want to really go back and make exactly the same picture. You want to rethink the elements and uh, add new elements or, as it were, reconfigure the existing elements. As a matter of fact, I have a meeting tomorrow uh, to participate in a possible remake of uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, one of my earlier films. Happy birthday, Roger Corman. Everyone at the House of Krauss loves you. Know that for sure. Uh, now I want to share a little interview with Kevin Nealon. Kevin Nealon started life as a stand-up comic. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, even though this phone connection is a bit dodgy, stick with it because he tells some cool stories about the first acting job that he ever had. He tells stories about working with Adam Sandler and the kind of advice that Adam Sandler gives his actors sometimes. It's worth a listen. Also, we talk about Saturday Night Live. We talk about all kinds of stuff. So here's Kevin Nealon. I was doing stand-up comedy for a long time before I got Saturday Night Live. So I kind of had, I think, that connection with the audience as far as kind of relating to them and being more comfortable in front of a live audience, and I think that helped me a lot. So, um, yeah, when it comes to stand-up, I, I, I really feel a connection with my audience. And, and after doing it for so long, I've been doing it for over 30 years now, I, I, I just when I walk into the room, I can kind of get that sense of, um, you know, of, of, of the audience and what, uh, what they're kind of about. Right. And do you look, I, I know that a, a lot of stand-ups, uh, when they get on stage, the first thing they do is they sort of have a look around the room and see, you know, uh, there's someone I could probably talk to sitting in the third row, and there's something happening in the back there that I could refer to, or is the show uh, not as interactive as that? Uh, for me, it is. I, I, I love uh, interacting with the audience. Um, it's a big part of my show, actually. But um, it's, it's not my whole show. But you do kind of find those pockets. You kind of find those faces and, um, and those things that you can make light of in a room. Your original uh, intention wasn't to act. It was to, to do only stand-up. Is that right? That's right. That was my, that was my sole uh, you know, goal was to become a stand-up comedian. I loved stand-up growing up. In Connecticut, I um, I used to follow all the stand-ups on TV, and I would highlight them in the TV guide when they were going to be on, and I would watch them, and I'd stay up, and and um, and ultimately, I decided, you know, it'd be a great job to be a stand-up comedian because I like telling jokes, and um, and I felt um, kind of at ease with it. Who was it that really grabbed you? Boy, there were so many of them. You know, early in my childhood, I would I would watch some of these comedians on on TV. I didn't even know their names, but um, as I got older, there was people like you know Andy Kaufman and Albert Brooks and Steve Martin that I enjoyed watching. And there's also another comic that I loved um, named Stanley Myron Handelman. He was this uh, comic from New York, kind of a real Long Island kind of a guy, and uh, he did a, a kind of this misdirection style of comedy, which I loved. Right. Right. Yeah. For me, growing up, it was always George Carlin. 
on the Ed Sullivan show. I just never oh, yeah. heard anyone use language like that before, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, he was different. He was, and I think that's that's kind of what makes comics stand out when they're unique and original, especially today because there's so many comedians. Well, is it more difficult today, not only because there are more comedians, but because invariably somebody's shooting on their cell phone, they're trying to, you know, tape some jokes and things end up on YouTube and, you know, it, 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 it used to be, I think anyway, and you would know better than me that, you know, years ago, uh, you had like your TV five, you know, the five minutes you do on, you know, a, a, a talk show or something, if you had the chance. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, stuff that you'd work out in the clubs and that now it seems like you might have to cycle through material a little faster just because, um, it ends up on the net. Well, that's a good question. I, I, you know, I think there's a little bit of both, uh, and, and it, the advantage of having all that um, social media is um, it gives you an opportunity to get your material out there, so you don't have to just be seen on television on the network. You know, you can have your own YouTube channel. You can go on, you know, Funnier or Die. You know, all those kind of things. Or just YouTube in general. Somebody, you know, there's so many comics that have really had a big burst in their career because somebody videotaped them and put them on YouTube and they went viral. Was there time uh, uh, that you said, you know what, uh, you know, I, as much as I love stand-up, it looks like acting is, is taking over here a little bit. Well, there was a moment in my stand-up career in the beginning when I would be at the improvisation in Hollywood and I would pretty much live there because that was the stand-up club that I liked. And one of the co-owners, um, Mark Lanau, came up to me once and he said, uh, do you ever think about doing you know, acting? And I, and I did, in a way, but I was embarrassed to say so, you know, for some reason. Because I didn't have any training in it or anything. And um, he said, well, you ought, to get, you ought to take some acting lessons because uh, one day the casting agent will come into the back room and see you and uh, you know, want you to come in and read for their show. So I took acting classes, and, uh, and that's sort of how I got into it. Right. And were you? What was the? What was the first thing? Uh, because often, you know, it's a commercial or it's something that that we might not know about as much. What was it for you? Well, there was a commercial I did, but didn't require a lot of acting. It was for the Disco Country Crackers with Lynn Anderson. She was a um, country singer, you know. And um, I just had to play the banjo next to her while she fed me crackers. <laughs> <laughs> and that commercial was out for about a week, and I was so excited. I remember even Jay Leno coming in to tell me uh, at the end, brothers, yeah, it's like a commercial. Good for you. Good for you. You know, and, uh, and then a week later, they found copper dust particles in the crackers, so they had to recall them all, and they took the commercial off the air. <laughs> <laughs> You've worked with Adam Sandler now on, on a lot of movies, The Wedding Singer, and, uh, Zohan, and Just Go With It, among others. Um, what is it about your relationship, uh, do you think, that, that keeps the two of you coming back for more? Well, I think we respect each other. We, um, we both come from a similar background, family-wise, and um, we're both from the East Coast, and uh, both were into stand-up comedy. So I think there's a lot of uh, similarities there. Well, and there, there's just something that I think is uh, so cool about the way that, that he works and that he brings, you know, uh, his, he's very loyal. It seems he's very yeah. loyal. And that, you know, that's something that is, I guess, intangible. It is intangible. But I really feel it when I see the movies. And, and, it's, and it's sort of, it, it brings up for me a lot of goodwill along with it. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, you do see that in the films. He's, um, he's, he's really good to work with. He's, he's fun. We know each other. Everybody knows each other's timing. and um, It's just it's a, it's a good little, uh, I don't want to say club, but, um, you know, we're, we're so used to each other. Uh, I guess with Adam uh, and working with him, um, do you say yes before you see the script, or is it just, <laughs> or because you work together so many times? How does that, how does that interaction work? Well, usually, you know, you're on board if he's doing something. Yeah. There was one movie that he, uh, that I was part of that I I wasn't quite sure in the beginning if I wanted to be part of it. it was called Grandma's Boy. Right. And uh, it was just such it was so lowbrow and crass, and you know it was just. I thought it might be a little embarrassing to be in that one, so, you know, I, I kind of told Sam I'll probably pass on it, and then he called me, he said, you know, Neil, I really hope you do this, because, if, you know, if you don't do it as a big kid, I'll feel bad, but if you do do it and it's not a big kid, no one's going to see it anyway. <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I guess when you've had uh, a career as long as yours has been and continues to thrive and, and do so well, um, maybe you learn a few things along the way like that, you know, those little, those kind of truisms that, that maybe you wouldn't have understood when you were a young, struggling stand-up or actor. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah really do. Um, what, uh, uh, can, I mean, and I know uh, this is kind of an odd thing, but are, are there any sort of bits of advice like that that you might give to any actors or, or starting stand-ups that might be listening to this or, or uh, reading this? Well, I get a lot of stand-ups that kind of ask for advice, and I think the best advice I ever got was uh, just to get up as much as you can on stage when you're starting out and be original. It's just write a lot and, and kind of observe the comics around you and see what works and what doesn't work and what, what is and, and try to find your voice. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I, I dated a stand-up comic for a long time, and she would... Uh, get up on stage some days and, you know, absolutely kill, and then other days not. And you never knew what was going to happen. You never could read the audience, or I certainly couldn't. But on the days when she couldn't seem to make the audience laugh, it seemed to drive her in a way that I didn't understand because I'm not a stand-up comic. You know, I, I don't understand that. Uh, my my reaction would have been to jump off the stage and run for the nearest exit. But I think stand-ups think differently. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And when I first got into stand-up, I knew that I would be bombing here and there until I kind of got my footing. Right. And it really prepared me for those nights when it wasn't going as well as I had hoped it would. And I knew that was just part of it. So I wasn't that trapped by it. That was Kevin Nealon talking about stand-up and all sorts of other things. You'll see him next in a movie called Dumb Prince, directed by Amy Poehler and co-starring Elizabeth Perkins and, and all sorts of other people. So keep your eye open for that. But right now, get out of here. It's time for you to take off. The House of Kraus is closed for this week. Please stop by again next week, though. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? Maybe it will be one of your favorites.